Welcome to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm recording this a few days before the official end of summer, and I hope you all had the chance to get away for a summer holiday that felt more normal than those you may have taken over the last couple of years. This summer, I had a chance to go back to Japan and catch up with my friend and former guest on the School of Travels, Peter Galante, who appeared in episode 65, if you want to go back and listen to our conversation. When I met up with Peter, he encouraged me to meet his former Italian teacher, who had impressed him so much that he ended up hiring her to work for him remotely. I took Peter up on his offer and got in touch with his teacher. Her name is Ileana Salvo, and in our first Zoom meeting with each other, we ended up naturally discussing many issues that come up in the first year of digital nomad life. By the end of our conversation, I asked Ileana if she would come on the podcast and ask her questions again so that we could share them with all the listeners we have here. Ileana has an incredible story of how she turned her love of languages at an early age into the chance to travel internationally, live in Japan, and then eventually become location independent through helping Peter with a new project. From dealing with taxes when you're not really based in one country, to how to handle the feeling that you're missing out on climbing the corporate ladder by being nomadic, Ileana and I discuss a number of issues that can come up for new digital nomads. Let's get into her story now. Welcome to episode 79 of the School of Travels podcast. Today, I'm here with Ileana Salvo, someone I was introduced to through our mutual friend, Peter Galante, who you can hear in episode 65 of the School of Travels podcast. Ileana, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Becky. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm so excited to get into this conversation with you because we're going to hear about your background first, but then we're going to have you ask some questions because you're a new nomadic person. And for anybody out there who's new or who's thinking about getting on the road, we're going to answer some of these probably very common questions that people have and that you've already experienced. So first of all, Ileana, can you tell us about your background? Sure. So um, I was born and raised in uh, Sicily, which is the, the southernmost part of Italy. And then I went to uni in Venice, majoring in Japanese language and culture. And afterwards, I just moved to Japan for my very first job. And then I stayed there for four years, actually until quite recently, because I moved out of Japan in May 2022. And now I'm the managing partner of Dexam, a business I'm co-running with Peter Galante, who, as you mentioned, was uh, a guest on your podcast here. And so um, just to say very quickly, what we're doing is that Dexam basically puts together Japanese porcelain tradition with Italian coffee tradition. So we are basically supporting the production of high-end espresso cups that are crafted by Japanese artisans. And so the aim is that of enhancing the overall coffee drinking experience. We are rethinking coffee as a ritual, which the, the cup is part of. 
Yeah, I I was actually introduced to you through Peter, and it was not that long ago. It was about a month ago. I sat down with Peter for a breakfast in Tokyo, and he pulled out this beautiful cup and showed me this espresso cup, the likes of which I'd never seen before. And he said, I'm working on this side project because from the episode 65 that I mentioned, we know that Peter, his first business was making language learning online for different um, languages, actually 34 languages, I think at this point. And um, yeah, he he told me about you. And I'd love to know, like for this Dexum project, what is he asking you to do? So what are you responsible for uh, in your nomadic life with Dexum? So this is actually the best thing for me about Dexum is that first of all, it puts together all the things that I like because there is one side the Japanese tradition, and then on the other side, the Italian tradition. And then basically part of my job is to take the cups around, get people to know them, gather feedback. So there is a story behind every cup, the people I've met, the people I've shared conversations with over a cup of coffee. So there is this social component that I really like because I get to connect with many people and hear their beautiful stories in the ceramics making or coffee making industries all over the world, basically in every country that I visit. And then there is the creative component as I take care of the social medias. I write the articles for our blog. So there is this content creation that I am really enjoying right now. Yeah. And I think the aim is to continue making these cups and start selling them to um, certain consumers. And I think also going to different countries and making cups uh, from other countries as well. Is that correct? Exactly. Yes. Right now we're focusing on Japanese artisans, but in the future we are hoping to extend these collaborations with artisans from other countries in the world. Okay. While we're talking about it, can you tell listeners where to go to check out the pictures of these cups? Oh, of course. So if you would like to check out our Instagram page, it's called Dexam Ceramics. So you can take a look of the cups we are promoting and all the places where these cups have been to. Yeah, and I'm so lucky to have my own cup. I'm actually helping you going around Lisbon uh, with this cup and getting some nice photos. And it's really, really fun, like you said, to connect with the different places and bring your cup along. Thank you so much, Becky. Really loved your pictures. I can't wait to receive some more. Thank you. And for those listening, it's D-E-X-E-M. We're going to put that in the show notes as we usually do. Okay, so Ileana, I want to go back further into your history before you studied Japanese and went to Japan. What got you interested in these other cultures initially, would you say? Um, I would say probably first of all was my birthplace that determined my my passion for travel. Because, you know, I'm from a very, very small town. I think it has like 3,000 to 5,000 inhabitants if you want to include the sheep as well. It's very, very small in the middle of nowhere. And so as a kid, I actually focus more on the things this place hasn't, on the possibilities I couldn't get here. And very quickly, I realized that language studies was going to give me opportunities to find out about different places and different realities. So actually, um, I remember very clearly my first English lesson at elementary school when I realized that English wasn't a made-up language, but it was actually a language spoken in the world by different people in different countries. And this absolutely fascinated me. I wanted to learn more. And so, you know, I started uh, picking up new languages. 
so French and Spanish. And this is actually quite interesting, I think, how it works in Italy is that you have to choose a high school based on the subjects you want to focus on. So, for example, you have a high school for scientific subjects, a high school for ancient subjects such as Latin and Greek, and then the one that I picked that was for modern languages. And the most interesting thing is that they take you to the country of the languages you're speaking so that you can practice at least once a year. So they took us, for example, to England and Ireland and France and also countries that weren't very related to the languages we were learning. For example, they took us to Russia. We were using English, of course. And so I had all of these experiences. And for me, learning a language was learning a culture and getting the possibility to go outside and just learn more and connect with more people. And this is basically, yes, how my passion for travel started. Wow. I want to ask quickly about Russia. So did you have a group of kids from Sicily all speaking English in Russia? Is that how it worked? What was what was your impression of Russia when you went? Yes, it was exactly like this. It was a classic change. So first we had a group of Russian students uh, coming to Sicily. So each one of us, we were having a Russian student in our families. They stayed with us for a month. And then we did the opposite. So our class, we went to Russia and a family was having each one of us. It was an absolutely interesting experience. We we rode the Trans-Siberian train 15 hours until we got to the city was called Kirovo GPS, which is kind of close to Siberia. It was in the middle of nature. We had um wolves that were coming out of the forest and they were just hanging around with us. It's surreal. And I found out the Russian people are absolutely warm people, kind, they would do anything for you. I just have very, very good memories of all the people that I've met there. Wow. And did your family in uh, close to Siberia, did they speak English with you or was it just Russian? Um, well, they would speak Russian to me. So they le- I learned actually a little bit of Russian living with them. But of course, the girl that I was staying with a girl, a student, she was the one who spoke English. So she would be translating between Russian and English so that we could all communicate. Wow. Okay. I feel like that could be a whole podcast episode itself, your experience <laughs> that month in Russia. That's amazing. I'm, I really wish I'd been able to go to a high school like that. That sounds incredible. Yes, I'm really grateful because they they gave us a lot of opportunities and the teachers were uh, there, they were fighting so that we could actually all go. They were trying to make arrangements so that we could all get the same opportunities. Because, of course, sometimes you would have to have quite a lot of money to finance these trips. But they they did a lot for us and we all managed to to go to Russia and these kind of countries. Wow. And and so are you now fluent in as you're saying French, Spanish, English, Italian, I guess Japanese as well? Five languages? Um, yes, yes. It's not the same fluency in all the languages. You know, if you don't use one language, you tend to forget a few words. And I tend to mix a lot of them. English and uh, not English, but French, Spanish, Italian, they are similar. So sometimes I just mix them. But I, I'm quite confident in having conversations in, in these languages, in, including Japanese, although it's very, very different. Yes, yes. Oh, wow. And I, I also heard in the pre-interview I had with you that you also took a solo trip to India for a three-day long wedding. I'm wondering, when was that? 
Exactly. Um, that was um, an interesting episode, actually. Um, I was in Japan uh, back then. So I, I had just arrived in Japan and I thought, as long as I'm in Japan, I'm just going to take advantage of being here in this side of the world and just explore a little bit of Asia. And what happened is that I was getting interested in yoga, meditation. So, of course, India was always in the back of my mind. And a Japanese friend of mine, she was invited to a wedding in India. Uh, This was an Indian friend that she had met in Australia. So it wasn't my friend, but Indian people are very welcoming, very open. And basically the soon-to-be husband told my friend that she was free to invite anyone. And she invited me because she knew that I was interested in India. So the only problem was that she could only take very few days of work to go to the wedding, but I was more flexible. So I took three weeks and I went uh, by myself in India. I traveled a bit and then I joined my friend to the wedding. So I didn't know anyone at the wedding, at the ceremony, but they treated me as I was part of the family. I feel like I have another family in India now. It was an amazing experience and I had this um, wedding, the wedding ceremony lasted three days, as you mentioned, and it was always partying. And the interesting thing that it was in the region where Gandhi was born. So alcohol was forbidden. Everyone was having so much fun without a drip of alcohol. This was um, a first for me because um, probably, you know, marriages in Italy, they're all about food and alcohol. But India was just about fun in any possible way by dancing and singing I had a blast wow which part of India I I wish I knew which part of India Gandhi was from I should know that but which part of India was this so it was in the west side of India it's called Gujarati that's where that was where the the couple was from so where the ceremony took part Okay, that's amazing. So yeah, as you said, using Japan as a good travel base, I did the same in the years that I lived there. Uh, And as you said, you were in Japan for four years. Can you tell us about your time in Japan? Of course. Well, for me, Japan, it's always been my dream. And I still think of it as a beautiful country and beautiful culture where I met beautiful people. Also, I did homestay in Japan when I was a student at university. I was an exchange student for a semester. So again, it's like I have another family in Japan. And also, Japan is for me the place where I found out that I love to surf because I wasn't living in Tokyo, but in Shonan, which is in Kanagawa. So maybe one hour away from Tokyo. So I had a very particular experience in Japan. But as I mentioned to you, the first time we talked, Becky, is that there are a couple of things that didn't match my personality. And that's why I decided eventually to to leave Japan. And so one of them is probably, you already know, but basically it's the life and work balance. So the first two years, I worked in an English conversational school. So it was owned by a Japanese corporation. So it was basically working for a Japanese company. And I remember that I did a lot of overtime. And even during my my last year in Japan, I was actually already working on Dexam. So I was very flexible. I was freelancing. But the problem was that I was super flexible and maybe available already in the late afternoon, in the evening. But all of my friends were working so much so that in the end, I kind of felt lonely because there was no one I could hang out with 
during the weekdays. And also, I want to ask you actually, Becky, if you, if it was the same for you, but I noticed that if you work this much from Monday to Friday, then of course you only have two days to spend with your friends. So I think that in Japan, uh, weekend schedules tend to be very hectic, very, very busy. And you have to plan in advance to make everyone's schedules match. So I had sometimes people asking me if I was free, for example, the first Sunday of January, but they would ask me this in November. So two months in advance. And probably this is very Sicilian of me, very Italian of me, but it's very difficult for me to plan so far ahead. And so it was always difficult to meet my friends, to be honest. I did encounter the same thing. And um, as some listeners will know, I lived in Japan for 12 years. And so you can imagine over those years, you meet more and more people that are based in your town where you're living. And it would sometimes be that I had four things scheduled at the same time on a Saturday night. It was usually Saturday night that was the big one. And I just felt so torn. I mean, I don't suffer so much from FOMO, but I started to at that time. And also just guilt that I couldn't see some people or I felt I always had to choose, okay, which thing is more important, but also it would, your own physical health would come into play because maybe sometimes you'd had a really busy week and you weren't even feeling like being social, but you felt that you had to, because like you said, maybe you planned it two months before. So I definitely felt that. And also the situation of everyone being busy during the week. And a lot of times you're spending, if you are spending time in the week, like the weeknights, you might be with elderly people or only the people that are outside of the work system uh, that you'll encounter. And it may not always be the people you're going to connect the most with. I completely agree. I would end up many times meeting my friends in the weekend, but I couldn't relax very much because I knew that then we had to rush to the next meeting and so it was pretty hectic and I felt like I could never relax and this this is something that made me suffer a little bit while I was in Japan to be honest. Yeah and it's good to touch on these things because Japan is a country that gets a lot of superlatives especially from people that don't live there or have never been there. It is a dream country for people to go to as tourists but if you live there as you said there's there's a different reality. Are there any other things that you struggled with living in Japan? Um, yes, I think uh, from my personal experience, I I thought that foreigners aren't really integrated into society. And to give you an example, this is what would happen to me is that, as I mentioned, during my first employment at the at the school, there were both Japanese and foreigners working together. And I was always in between because I, I had some administrative tasks with the Japanese and some teaching tasks with the foreigners. So I would always hang out or with the Japanese or with the foreigners. And there were very, very few times when we um, hang out all together. And even when we did, I had this feeling that the group wasn't very well blended. And I think it's because it could be, of course, because of cultural reasons, I guess, that all the foreigners, even though we came from different countries, we had lots of similarities compared to maybe a, a different culture like Japanese culture could be. But also I feel like the barrier could be the language. I mean, there were some foreigners speaking Japanese and Japanese speaking English, but I feel there is like a substantial difference. So for example, foreigners, they don't really care if their Japanese is perfect or not. They they try and somehow the message always gets across. 
And this has happened to me. I noticed this even in other countries. I once spent a year in Spain and I noticed that people never cared if their English or Spanish was perfect. They would communicate. But I feel like in Japan, there is this tendency towards uh, perfectionism and people really care about delivering uh, grammatically corrected sentences. And this sometimes could become a barrier. What do you think, Becky? Have you ever experienced this yourself? Yes, I, I think that if you went even to like new parties or a new event where you were meeting a lot of new Japanese people, um, I think there is definitely the tendency for um, them to say a lot of the same things to you at the beginning because they, you know, maybe they're shy, but also a afraid of speaking uh, if they're going to speak perfect English. So sometimes they wouldn't speak much at all, or they would like kind of get stuck on what I felt were like common stereotypes about a Western person. Like it is actually a joke amongst um, Western people in Japan when someone says, oh, you can use chopsticks or, oh, you're, you're good at using chopsticks. And, and you're thinking, yeah, I've been living here for five or six years, you know, five years at this point, of course, like, I eat the same as, as you do, but, you know, just kind of pointing those things out. But uh, the other thing I noticed also was, and I'm American, it's a, it's a different culture, but um, women are, I think, in general, not supposed to be loud and very bold in conversation with, when there, there's men or, you know, I think with women, it's it was different, but um, they don't say a lot of things about their personal life and they don't propose a lot of ideas and topics in conversation first. And that is not how I'm used to being in, in America with my friends. So after a while, it kind of felt like there was this invisible limit with how I could be. And that it was a cultural difference really is, is what was happening. But yeah, over time you're thinking, you know, what should I stay in this kind of um, system for a long time? Is it, should I keep fighting to change? Should I just adapt? It's, it's always a difficult thing in any country to adapt to these different cultural barriers. I agree. Um, you just touched the, the right point because I think there is like a, a silent, everyone agrees on this silent etiquette, especially um, among women. There is a certain way you're supposed to behave, certain things that you're supposed to say. And I felt it a little bit tied on me. That's that's true. And well, one more thing actually was that my priorities have changed during the years, I think. And I feel like Japan is so far away from my dear ones. So it happened that, uh, well, it happened to everyone. But basically, because of the pandemic, I kind of got stuck in Japan. I was supposed to go back home for the very first time in 2020. But then, well more years have passed and the first time I was able to see my my family and friends was uh, after three years and I kind of realized that I had missed on so many things like my little brother was a man and my cousin had got married and they had children that I had never met and my friends they were gathering some weekends you know even if you're scattered in Europe, it's very easy to get on a plane, a two-hour flight, and then you are reunited. So you can spend a weekend together, celebrate someone's graduation or someone's promotion. Whereas I, I felt that I was so far away from these little things that actually make me happy. And that was, I guess, the, the last straw. I decided I need to spend more time with people that I really, really love. Of course, my, my heart was broken because I have people that I really love in Japan too. But I guess it's easier for me to be in Europe and just be close to my my family and my old school friends. 
I totally understand that. And I do agree that you're always going to feel like the outsider in a, in a society like Japan. And so it's, you know, you have to decide how important is it to be closer to my family. And I understand for you, you felt that it was, it was more important to be with the family and seeing them more regularly than staying based in Japan. And that was one of the decisions I made as well when I left after 12 years being based there. Um, I, I now live in Portugal as listeners know, and it's part of it was because it's a much closer flight home. So, and I hope also for my family to come and visit me. And yeah, I, the thing is though, um, one, one dilemma that you face with a place, a culture that on one hand you really, really love, but on the other, there's these issues that may be a deal breakers for you. Like, for example, the, um, ten- the tendency towards perfection with speaking, like you said, that tendency towards perfection goes throughout the, cu- the culture and it does make for some really good things such as always being on time, having really high quality service provided, and you can depend on the society and trust so many things. And, and that I miss. So sometimes I'm like, huh. <laughs> What was it worth it to get these things, but also sometimes not have people want to speak so much to you? It's it's a tough one. It is. I totally agree. I mean, I I moved out uh, from Japan just a few months ago. I already missed those little things that you just mentioned. I guess you will always find pros and cons wherever you go, and you just have to prioritize those pros and cons. Yes. Yeah. And so, as you said, you left Japan and you started living nomadically. And so I want to ask, well, I want to tell the list, get this out for the listeners. I want to ask you how old you are at the moment. Uh, So right now I'm 26, 26 years old. Okay. So you're 26 and you're, you've just become a nomad recently. And yeah, I want to have like kind of a Q and a session now also gearing it towards listeners who maybe are thinking about being remote and starting to be nomadic now that a lot of borders have opened up again. Um, but yeah, also share some of what you've experienced in these first few months to see if we can teach people some things and give them a lot of tips. So, um, do you have any, things that you've encountered in these first few months of being nomadic that you wanted to ask me about? Yes, actually I have a few things that I would like to ask you and I hope that this can be useful to other people like me. So, um, well, my very first issue was taxes. So I realized how ta- how important taxes are already when I was in Japan, when I started freelancing for during my last year. And so I was doing my own taxes and I realized, well, Japan is kind of expensive when it comes to taxes. But then, as you know, I moved out of Japan and moved my residency, my tax residency in Italy. And I realized this is even worse. So I got in touch with um, other nomadics, uh, especially Italians. And I heard that many of them, what they do is that they move their tax residency to other countries that are a little bit, um, they have like less taxes. But at the same time, when you do such a thing, then you are kind of tied to that country. So you have to spend physically some time to prove that you're actually a resident there. And so you have to pay taxes there. And so I was wondering, Becky, have you ever thought about this? Have you chosen Portugal because it was more convenient in terms of taxes? Have you ever kept taxes in mind when you moved or you just pick the countries that you would just like? I mean, what is the thoughts that you have when you pick a new countries? 
Such a good question. Um, and actually, I used to do taxes for a living for four years um, when I was in Tokyo. It was for U.S. expats. So U.S. people, I should say, right off the bat are different because we always have to pay taxes no matter where we are in the world. And we'll either pay more tax to the U.S. if we're in a lower taxed country outside of the U.S. or we will pay um we will pay more to that, like to the U.S. and less in the other country. It, it all balances out for us. But I moved to Portugal because I knew two things. First of all, they could give me a visa as a freelancer. And second of all, they do have a 10-year lower tax scheme, which they are using to draw people in. Um, so I, I knew that probably I could pay a bit less than in Japan, but also, um, you know, get get good, ser- decent services so I just actually paid some taxes this morning at the local tax office here, and I've now gotten an, an idea of what I'm going to be paying every year. And I'm sure there's ways that you can like maximize the the tax reductions, uh, which I may be missing out on. But to be honest, it's only slightly cheaper here on the tax um, benefits that I'm getting than when I was in Japan. But the difference was in Japan, I was often um, an employee and here I'm a freelancer. So it seems around the world that freelancers don't get the same help that employees get in terms of like getting more of their social security paid for by their company or getting some of their health care paid. Um, so yeah, you really have to, you, you should take tax into consideration when you're deciding to become a resident. But I think this is the perennial problem of nomads is like they feel sometimes they have to move too often to avoid hitting those residency requirements like you mentioned often it's six months that people have to stay in a place to become a tax resident but i have seen europeans like you said who are from higher tax countries coming to a place like portugal where they can also get this 10-year tax reduction um but they sometimes also set up a company in estonia uh which doesn't have taxes and then they can kind of get tax savings that way. I don't know enough about that because it doesn't help U.S. citizens to do that. But yeah, I I, I do know that it, it, um, Italy is a higher taxed country. So yeah, you might be thinking about coming to a place like Portugal, also Bulgaria, I've heard has lower tax rates overall. So Yes, thank you. There are definitely more countries I have to explore concerning taxes because, yes, the Italian government wants a lot of money. So thank you. I will definitely check out Estonia and see um, how how it is over there. Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot to take into consideration because like Georgia, the country also has a lot of tax breaks. But Georgia right now, it's in a very complicated position being next to Russia, and you don't know exactly what might happen in Georgia. So there's so many things to take into consideration as you become a nomad. And if you're truly nomadic, you may be able to keep saving on your taxes. But uh, if, if you're not American, <laughs> but if you um, if you do decide to, you want to slow down and stay in one place, yeah, you need to look into it and really see what the benefits are going to be versus the drawbacks. Thank you. Actually, I would like to take advantage and share this experience. I hope it can be useful to other people. But well, it is strictly connected to Italy. But basically, there is a certain certain type of residency that is perfect for people who want to have a nomadic lifestyle, which is called, if I have to translate, it would be like residency without a fixed place. 
So because other uh, otherwise you have to keep paying rent in your country where you have the residency and then the country where you're travel, traveling to. But the problem that I have encountered, not only here, specifically in Sicily, but talking to other people who are doing the same all over Italy, is that this residency was, in the past, was used for homeless people. Because to give them their rights, they needed to have residency. So even though they didn't have a house, they they were allowed to have this residency. But to them, I'm not homeless. I have people People like parents and families and friends living in the city where I wanted to move my residency. So they didn't actually allow me to get the residency that I wanted, although it's in my right. I heard people with a lot of time and a lot of money and willingness to fight. They eventually got it. But it is a very difficult process and you know it's just easier to leave things as they are. Although, you know, we Within me, I feel like I should fight for it, but it's just not the right time. I want to move on and just travel to another country. But um, yes, I, I heard many people experience this kind of um, accidents along the way. And I was wondering if you ever had to, to face something like this or anyway, any other accidents due to your nomadic lifestyle. All seeming like diff- just difficulties in general by not having like a tax home or just in just you mean more in general um well this was specifically related to taxes so i was wondering yes if you ever encountered anything related to your residency or taxes or in general i i guess you you all go through a lot of accidents along the way when traveling yeah i mean there's been stories of people in thailand i think this was like just around the pandemic time when they, people were staying longer of governments like closing you know co-working spaces down or, or approaching people and saying that they owed tax um, may have also happened in Indonesia at one point but it, it's becoming also more of a concern like I know in Mexico last year a lot of people were going there because there were no COVID test uh, regulations to get in but Mexico was getting very uh, strict about how many days you could stay so it used to be just like six months for most for a lot of countries right off the bat but then you would get to the border in Mexico and they would say, how long are you staying? I want to see your your flight out. And they would only give you the number of days until that flight. And some people got very few days, uh, even though just a year before they were able to stay 60 days. And that was partly because of these taxes. I think they don't want people working in the country and not paying what they should. And um, I also like my my residence, quote unquote, in the U.S. is my parents address because I've never had my own home there. So, yeah, you're always like hoping that you can get all the communication they send you. Uh, but, yeah, it is a tricky thing you have to think about as a nomad for sure. Yes, it is definitely i would say more difficult than it looks it, it looks amazing like having this nomadic lifestyle and traveling and being free but then you have to think about a lot of things that might get you i'm not i don't want to say stuck to one place but definitely there is a lot to think about before you get on the move yeah and i think um even friends i had who were nomads uh for years without a base they were uh, this this couple i'm thinking of they were french and dutch uh but they eventually decided to get residency in bulgaria because uh well first of all they had bought property there but second of all they started to feel after a few years of paying no taxes that they were somehow going to get caught by somebody. You know what I mean? It's like it was better to have that residency or that base. But they do have 
they have set up the fact that they're able to travel quite a bit uh, from their base. And I think that's sometimes what nomads will end up doing in the long term. They may start traveling more slowly and then find a tax base that kind of works for them. Yes, that that makes sense, actually. And just staying on this subject about, you know, general accidents, I actually wanted to share. It's a minor accident, but I wanted to share this experience because just the um, two months ago, I was traveling to Scotland where my cousin lives and I stayed there for two weeks. And then I thought, well, it's time to go back home. So I had my flight scheduled in the weekend, but then I got covid And so, of course, I couldn't travel and I postponed my flight one week. And then again, I was healed. I was ready to go. But, well, it was pretty messy during summer here in Europe because of strikes. So basically what happened was that Ryanair canceled my flight. So I got stuck again in Scotland because all the other flights were already sold out. It was crazy. And I could only get another flight for the next week. So I ended up staying a month in Scotland rather than two weeks. And of course, I was lucky because I was staying at my cousin. So I we, we got more time to spend together. But I wonder, what if you're just traveling and then you have to pay two extra weeks of hotels and food? And then it becomes actually kind of tricky. And I was wondering, Becky, if you ever had this kind of sort of negative experiences while traveling, some accidents along the way. Yeah, um, I fortunately did not ever have a position like a situation where I was stuck with COVID uh, these past two years somewhere and couldn't fly. But um, I've definitely well, I think this happened to a lot of people in the past two years. I I definitely have had to buy another ticket right uh, as an emergency on the same day because I didn't know all of the COVID rules for entering countries. And you can end up spending a lot. And then, of course, you have to spend more time in a place because maybe you miss that flight, like you said. Um, and it, it can be very expensive. It can be very expensive to be a homeless nomad, let's say, because especially now post-pandemic, the cost of hotels and even hostels ha- have just, has just skyrocketed. And it seems like everybody's traveling again now in the, this this summer and even hostels were full and like, you know, there was, it seemed like there were a lot less options. So I think this is where, like you said, with your cousin, Building up your network um, of other nomads, of friends around the world can be very helpful. And maybe when you're flying into that new place, think about a plan B in the back of your mind. We didn't used to have to do this as much, I think, before the pandemic, um, especially 2019. There were so many airlines, so many places. But nowadays, it might be worth like, okay, what happens if I do get stuck here? What am I going to do? Or where would I go if I have to stay another night here? Things like that. This is absolutely useful. The pandemic has changed the way we travel. So thanks for this piece of advice. And well, staying on this subject of accidents, I I was just wondering because I I like traveling solo. I did so in India. Everyone was against me saying it's a very dangerous country for a woman. And I agree, it can be dangerous. But I overall, I think I was fine. I only had a couple of experiences where I didn't feel extremely safe, but I made it out alive. So I was wondering if you travel often by yourself and as a woman, if you ever felt in danger in any country. Um, More specifically, I'm interested in the future in South America. Everyone is telling me you shouldn't go there alone by yourself as a woman. So yes, Becky, what's your experience with, uh, with this subject? 
Yeah, I actually have traveled quite a bit by myself, especially like the in my 20s and up to the mid 30s, I would say. And um, I actually have been very, very lucky in terms of safety. But I probably felt the most uh, scared in Las Vegas, of all places, the first time I went because I chose a hostel that was not on the main tourist route. It was a few blocks off the the strip, as they call it in, in Las Vegas. And I found myself at night walking back to my hostel alone. And I think that's a, a major lesson there is like, okay, in places that are considered to be more dangerous, unfortunately, as women, we need to avoid the night by ourselves, uh, walking, especially in places off the tourist, off the beaten path, let's say. And that was, that's the first thing I did in South America. When I, whenever I'd be alone, I tended to not go out after, after sunset, really. As boring as that might sound, I, I always felt it was the safer play. But what I would do is if I went to a hostel, which I find it easier there to meet people and, and be able to go out in groups. I would make friends and I would listen for when people were talking about going to dinner, maybe in the main lounge. And then I would ask if I could join them. And that always helped being in a group. Like for example, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, I stayed in one of the neighborhoods that some people would call a favela, like a poor neighborhood in a hostel. But we walked with a group and some of the people who ran the hostel came with us and no problem. Um, the only thing I ever had happened to me was actually in the middle of the day with a, a guy who I had uh, been in a class with in Buenos Aires. We were actually mugged in the middle of a day, in the middle of the day by three guys. But strangely enough, perhaps because it wasn't a park with people around us, when I screamed very loudly, they just walked, they ran off. They didn't end up taking anything from us. So I think um, it's it's kind of keeping your wits about you. I always have a small purse that is always right in front of me with a strap that goes completely over my body. And I will not hold my phone out um, when I think I'm near a busy road where a bike might be able to go by. And also now my phone has um, not only a case that will help protect my phone from damage if it falls, but I've got one of those... Um, pop sockets that that hang off the back of the phone so I can always grip the phone um, where somebody couldn't just grab it off of me easily. It would be, uh, they'd have to be extra, extra strong to get it off of me right away. So things like that, as you're alone, like take those precautions. Also things like don't look at a map or Google Maps on your phone outside, maybe go into a building to, to look at your maps. So you don't look like a lost tourist. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, this is very, very useful. Just be, you're right, actually, because you said it's better to be in a group. Every time I had situations in which I felt in danger, it's true, I I was alone. Um, There was this one time in India, I just arrived to a new city and it was nighttime. So this is already not a good start. And you know, it's, um, it's very common. People try to, to scam you with, with money. Maybe they ask you double the rate that it should be. And that's fine by me as long as they want my money. But, um, what happened once was that, um, I was supposed to have, um, a taxi driver who was waiting for me at night, uh, outside of the station. And we had only message. So I never met the guy and I arrived. I got off the, the train. I get out of the train station. And there is this guy who looks like my guy saying, hey, I was waiting for you. Come, come. And I I was silly enough not to double check the messages. So I didn't ask him to show me his messages. 
um, it was there were a lot of people, and I just wanted to get safely into the car. And I basically got into the car, and then someone else approached me, say, "What are you doing? It's not him. It's me." And he showed me the messages, and that's when I realized I was on the wrong car, on the wrong car with the wrong guy. And I got very, very scared. But uh, I mean, I was lucky enough that the the real guy got me in time. And this makes me think. First of all, never arrive um, in a new city that could be potentially dangerous at nighttime. So maybe it's better to arrive in the day. Anything can happen also during the day, as you just mentioned with your experience in Buenos Aires. But probably there is a big difference between nighttime and daytime and always probably double check with people that they have, the, the real people. So always get proof that you are with the right people. Probably this could go a long way. Yeah, I think um, all these precautions to take, especially as you start your journey as a nomad and you like only carry, <laughs> I would say carry as, as little luggage as you can. So it's easier to move around quickly if you need to. If somebody, I don't know, starts trying to come after you or whatever, it's uh, it's easy to maybe go around even with like a fake wallet if you're really in a place where you don't think it's safe. Um, and just, yeah, travel in small groups and make friends as soon as you can, especially, again, in a place that you're not so confident about. Um, I did have a question for you, Ileana, about work. So, of course, we're not going to talk salary or, or anything here, but have you found, do you feel confident that you're earning enough or have you had had a no trouble finding jobs while you've uh, been a freelancer as a nomad? I know this can be a problem for people is like how to get enough income. Well, so far, I I feel comfortable working with Peter, but actually what I want to do in the future is something that I'm trying to start. It's getting more into the translation business and so also settle a business as a freelance translator. But I'm finding it a little bit difficult right now. I'm using a few platforms online, but I, I noticed that the competition is huge and there is this kind of circle where people... They, they only ask you for, they only basically give the gigs to people with more experience. So there is no way to get started. Or even if I do, it's just because I'm lowering my rates to the point that basically it doesn't make sense because it's so much work for very, very little money just to get the experience. And so this can create a sort of frustration. I was wondering if you have maybe any recommendations about platforms or, yeah. How how do you get jobs in a, in a new business? Yeah, I think one way that it worked for you as your main income is is yeah to network and use the people you already know and see if they have some work you can do online for them, um, or if they know somebody that could also help you. But if you need platforms, <clears throat> the classic ones are like Fiverr with two R's at the end, um, or Freelancer.com, Upwork. Um, there's another. Uh, website called Flex Jobs, but you have to pay a subscription of like $7 a month for that. Um, and I guess it is, you, you do often have to start at the bottom and just be consistent by trying to get these jobs you may not like at the beginning that don't pay much, but get those as your experience and keep building up. For languages, I, I've always like been so uh, proud of those people on YouTube who seem like they just kept at it and they started getting a lot of uh, clients and and jobs through just having a YouTube channel talking about what they do. So I don't know if you know you can bring a camera or you want you're interested in the YouTube side of things, but that's another way to kind of almost like make your online video resume 
once or twice a week if you keep uploading the videos. Well, yes, you're right. I think I should use more. I, I don't like using the word use, but definitely take advantage of the the people I know. And also, um, there are so many opportunities that could be explored. But something that you mentioned really, really resonated with me was the, the consistency. Yeah, you have to be consistent and probably something will come out. Yeah, this is unfortunately the way these algorithms work these days is either you are doing it all yourself and, and the algorithm is seeing the keywords and they're picking things up or it's hiring someone on Fiverr perhaps to do that for you. But if you start out as a nomad and you don't have a lot of savings, then that seems like, why would I pay for that? But I think that, yeah, this is this is one way to start. Thank you so much. And actually, I have another question, which is, not really related to what we were talking about right now, but it's about this nomadic lifestyle. So um, last year, again, I was back to Europe. I traveled to so many countries. It was amazing. And this year in summer, I did the same. But I noticed that I was a little bit getting tired, as in it's nice to have a fixed place to go back to rather than being constantly on the move. Of course, it's nice to meet new people and you get more connections and it's like the world is becoming wider, but also smaller for you. And I really, really like this. But at the same time, I kind of get exhausted sometimes of having to build on new relationships when it's nice, when you, you know, you get back to the ones that you already have, it's just easier and you can relax. So I was wondering how is it for you? You have a lot of experience moving around and if you ever felt like this. Yeah. Oh, this is so, so typical with nomads, especially I'd say after like the first year, like you have this first year of like, oh, I want to go there and there and there. And you you feel more like a tourist while also somehow balancing the work that you have. But after a while, like you said, you might meet a lot of people. You They start asking you to go different places and, and you start to get run down. And I would say then you need to become more of a slow mad, as we call it, and perhaps like go to places where you've heard that the place is already set up and popular with nomads. This does tend to make you meet more nomadic people than a lot of locals if you're going to co-working spaces where you see these other nomads. But they also can give you a lot of tips and, and give you that sense of community. But you could, I would say, start staying in these places a minimum of, of a month, but even up to three months. And some places I would think of are, for example, Lisbon. It's one reason I decide to live in Lisbon, because a lot of my friends that I, I've met around the world, they keep coming back here to stay for a while. And a lot of them are nomads. Um, so I don't have to do anything. They just come to me. Um, or also places like Chiang Mai, Thailand, another very popular place for nomads to gather. Bali. Sometimes also going to places that are geographically smaller makes things easier because the, the distance, the distances to go all of the places you need to go are not so far. So that helps you just kind of relax and, and stay, um, you know, more grounded. Uh, but those are some things also joining like places like a gym where you can stay longer and you start to know the people at the gym and you get into a routine. And sometimes routine is very calming and helps us to relax. Um, I really like these words, slow mad. Um, I guess this might be the, the thing I'm looking for because I, I love traveling. I love, um, meeting new people and seeing new countries, but sometimes it gets, it can get frustrating or tiring. And I think, um, probably human beings, you, you need social 
contact with people, you know, not constantly new ones, but it, it's nice to have, I guess it's nice to have a community, to have someone close to you to rely on rather than, you know, you can always call your friends and video call them, but it's different when you can actually hang out physically with someone in the same city. Yeah. Places that have established meetups, uh, like if you go on meetup.com and you check out a city and it's got so many different places and events that you can join other people at, it's it's really, really uh, nice. And it makes things easy for meeting people or just staying in hostels. But hostels as a nomad, I mean, I, I barely ever stay in hostels anymore unless I'm actually on a vacation because it just, I don't know how to work very well from those t- <laughs> those dorm rooms and the private rooms tend to be very expensive. But at the same time, it really still is the easiest place for me to meet people. So for me, it's I'm kind of torn with the idea of a hostel. Yes, I agree. I actually stayed in a hostel uh, this summer w- while I was actually working. And it was a little bit difficult to to concentrate, to focus, even not just the dorm, but also the open space that everyone could use. But everyone is, of course, chatting. I have to work, but I want to talk to them. So, yeah, hostel can be complicated if you're working. I agree. It also can create a lot of FOMO because a lot of the people in hostels are on vacation and you're like, I'm not on vacation, but I'm in a beautiful place. I wish I could, you know, take the whole day off and hang out with them. Um, the other thing that you might want to look into, and I don't think you you yourself have tried these yet, um, depending on the cost, because some programs are can get quite expensive, but some are more affordable. There are a number of companies that started catering to nomads and basically they invite a group of nomads to come together and travel together and move every month to a new place. So you can join the program for as many months as you want. It's a certain price every month. And for example, you might start in Cape Town, South Africa with a group of nomads, and then you all might move next to Lisbon. And then the next month is Italy. And these companies, one of them is called Wi-Fi Tribe. There is one called Remote Year. Um, and Hacker's Paradise is another. So some people might find this to be a good way to just have built-in friends and they will book the places for you that you stay. And often your weekends get scheduled as well with the people that are in that group. So I, I haven't even, I haven't tried these myself either, but it's something I might do in the future. Wow, this is something I never heard of, but definitely something I would like to try. Thank you so much for bringing this up. I will look into it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It depends also how independent of a traveler you are. And I I think that for me, I'd probably do it for a month or two and then go back on my own again, visit friends and family. But it's nice to know that that option is out there. Exactly. Yes, me too. I would like to, to try it just to see how it is. And well, there is actually something else in my mind that I would like to ask you. Um, well, basically what I see is that my friends, let's say friends who have standard jobs, I feel like they have these this titles, like very standard titles that it's easier for them if they want to change job. They keep the title, they move to a different company, or it's even easier if they want to advance, you know, you're going to get the next title. Whereas working as a freelancer, I feel like I'm doing a little bit of everything, but I'm not maybe specializing in something very specifically. And this sometimes makes me feel like uh, maybe I am less employable if one day I decide to go, you know, working for a company because I'm not specializing on something. And I'm not saying that I don't have a real job. This is far from what I would like to say, but um, 
I get this feeling that I am losing something compared to some other of my friends. And I was wondering if you ever felt the same. Yeah, I have felt the same before for sure. But I decided like as I continued being a nomad that really I, I didn't re- I didn't have to worry. And if I wasn't like basically, I should say I you don't have to worry as long as you're building up your network because your network, even before I became a nomad, was where I would get my next job. And I am a person who is pretty agreeable. I, I tend to make the best out of situations. Um So I, I was always grateful when a new opportunity would present itself. And I often would just, yeah, be amazed at the job that I would get into just by chatting with someone in a bar. This happened to me uh, with a job I had for four years. I joined a pub quiz. These two guys were at a table and I got a job from one of them who turned out to be a hiring manager for the exact line of work that I already did. So I would say just putting yourself out there. Um, get a, get a nice LinkedIn profile going as well. And you can kind of, I'm not, not going to say make up your title, but especially if you're an entrepreneur, like you can be what you, what you know you're doing every day. You can put that as your title and just explain it in the interview, show off your portfolio of what you do as you travel. And I think that you're, you're not going to have, you know, you, you still will find amazing opportunities out there. And we, it is true. We're going to have to build more of our own opportunities as nomads as well unless we're working for companies remotely uh, that's a different story but yes the kind of work you're doing as a freelancer myself as well we're going to need to network and and push harder to to get those next positions well you, you made it sound very easy just go out a quiz and just make friends with hiring managers but i'm I feel super excited about this um trying to take advantage of every opportunity that comes along my way So thanks for, for this useful tip. Yeah, about the pub quiz. It's, it's, it's also like he wouldn't have known I was looking for a job if I didn't just happen to say it. I didn't know he hired people. But, you know, it's it's also like letting people know who you are as you connect with them as well. And there are meetups for this around the world, too. And you never know who's going to be in that meetup that might be able to help you with your next job. Definitely. And. Well, I think you answered all of my questions. I had so many. Sorry, Becky, I took a lot of your time just asking questions. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for answering. And I hope this conversation might be useful for anyone else who wants to start being um, um, Norbert. So thank you so much, Becky. I think uh, I asked you everything. Oh, I'm happy to help. And I, as, as you said, I hope that people listening out there do find this helpful, especially to ease some of their concerns or answer questions they may have had about this lifestyle. Uh, and it's it's different for everyone. I mean, some people are traveling with children or pets. It's We all have different needs. But I did want to ask you, Ileana, what, is, what are your next plans as a nomad? Where are you going to? So um, next country is going to be New Zealand. I'm leaving in less than a month. So I was already thinking of all the pub quizzes I can go to in New Zealand. So yes, next destination is going to be Auckland. And hopefully I can make the best of my time there visiting both islands in the north and in the south. And then once I'm that side of the world, I was thinking of traveling to Australia, Tasmania, the islands, uh, Fiji Islands. And yeah, this is my plan for, I guess, the next year. That sounds amazing. How How long do you plan to be in New Zealand? Well, I was thinking always for tax reasons, six months, maybe not longer than six months. And 
if I can squeeze in Australia in those six months will be awesome. But probably I will need to get back to Yale. I'm still trying to work this out with my accountant. But yes, I would like to spend at least uh, six months over there. Yeah, I think for that whole region, would be great. I think for me, I can only go to New Zealand for 90 days. But because you're under 30, there's also, I don't know if you're planning to do this, but for those listening, you can also try to get a working holiday visa. I don't know what the situation is with that. Um, I know they've opened with co- like after COVID, but there might be a bit of a backup or a delay on that because of COVID. But yeah, you're still in the age range to be able to do that as well. But again, got to check with your accountant. And I know that you're traveling more and going to more places around the world than maybe staying six months or a year in New Zealand would allow for. So. Exactly. Actually, I'm, I already have the working holiday visa. So New Zealand has already opened to everyone. Things are back to normal. I'm just hoping that things will be stable even throughout our winter and their summer. Oh, fantastic. That's yeah. You've already got the paperwork done. Well, Ileana, I, I hope you have a wonderful time in New Zealand and Fiji and Australia. And thank you again for sitting down and having this kind of interview with me. And, and I hope that I answered all of your questions and I wish you the best of luck with Dexum Ceramics. And we're going to put that link in the show notes and th- to see these gorgeous espresso cups. But yeah, um, I look forward to talking with you again and seeing how everything went. Thank you so much for this, Becky. I really learned a lot. I'm going to check out all the websites you shared with me, all of your tips, super useful. And hopefully this can help other people as well. So thank you so much for today. Thank you. And ciao. Ciao, ciao. Well, listeners, I hope you can agree that I think Ileana has a really bright future ahead of her, no matter how long she continues on her nomadic journey. I love how her location independence now allows her to spend more time with her family than when she was an expat based in Japan. And yet she's also still getting the chance to travel to places on her bucket list. As we heard from Ileana's story, you never know what job you may find to start your location independent journey. Freedom to travel just might take the form of a handcrafted espresso cup. To see these beautiful cups from Dexum Ceramics, by the way, you can check out Dexum, that's D-E-X-E-M, dot ceramics on instagram and follow these cups around the world be sure to also check out the show notes on the schooloftravels.com thank you for listening as always and until next time stay safe stay healthy and stay tuned thanks for listening to the school of travels podcast if you enjoyed this episode we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money in this world. Living in this perfect world